excited about I have with Emily. He's an author, lecturer, and filmmaker. He's been 12 books, including the Nephilim trilogy, which made the CDA bestsellers list. He's an honorary doctorate for series from his mentor, I.D.B. Thomas, where he was the fellowist at Pacific International University. In his series, The Trail of the Nephilim, uncovers starting levels that there's been a massive cover-up, which he believes is the remains of the Nephilim, the giants mentioned in the Bible. L.A., thank you for coming on. How are you? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's always good to uh, meet new faces and uh, get the word out, as it were. I'm really excited for this episode, talking about one of my favorite subjects, forbidden archaeology. I guess that's what you would call it, forbidden archaeology. What I'm trying to figure out is, has our, has our whole history been covered up on purpose, or have they just not got it right? You think I think it's both, but I would also lean towards there's been a deliberate obfuscation um, by the powers that be. There was a man, an archaeologist, in, in the infancy of the study of archaeology. And um, <clears throat> the guy's name was Cyrus Thomas. There was all this heated discussion in the 19th century into the 20th about who built these mysterious mounds, which go from the Great Lakes all the way down to Florida. Lots of stone chambers, lots of places like America's Stonehenge, which is episode four in our series on the Trail of the Nephilim. And there was all this all this talk, um, well, maybe we're looking at a lost race, we're not sure. And <clears throat> Cyrus Thomas basically declared, and this became gospel, Cyrus Thomas declared that Native Americans built all these mounds, all these complexes, and I'm not making this up, but they simply forgot that they had done so. I just forgot. I I, I, I heard that in the documentary, and I thought, that is so ridiculous. Like, if anybody believes that, I mean, knowing that how the Native Americans are, um, you would think that, that they, they pass all their traditions down to their relatives. So if they built those, their yes. relatives would surely know about it. How, how Absolutely. You... And this is, this, is the, this is the problem. And this is what, if, if you're going to become an archaeologist, you parrot what you're told to parrot. Or, or you'll never, you know, you'll never go anywhere uh, in the system, and and that's that's how it is. And so when you talk to archaeologists today about giant skeletons, they just laugh at you. Um, and yet, in their own book, in the Smithsonian's, when you go back in, in the, into the 19th century, right, it's it's all there. They're they're finding skeletons eight, nine, ten, twelve feet. It's in their literature, and then of course. The skeletons that were in the museums, they've all been taken out. So there's a deliberate obfuscation by the powers that be to eliminate this. Um, in, the, in the very first real mysterious mound builders, we, we talk about the idea of all this dirt and all this digging that had to be done to construct these mounds. And again, mainstream archaeologists will insist. And there's a clip that I show, I actually show in the film where this docent at, a, at Fort Ancient, which is one of the, when I, when I walk into Fort Ancient, my jaw hit the ground. It's 3.5 miles of continuous earthen walls. 3.5 miles of continuous earthen walls. We were there on the spring equinox and the gate had two mounds in it. And that was the gate to the entire complex. It's the still, there's a road that goes through it, but, but the mounds were still there. And it was, it was the spring equinox and we, my wife has this, this uh, application on her cell phone. And so 
she, she took the, 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 the um, constellations, because that's what she does, and she pointed, pointed the cell phone like this, right between the two gates, and it was, it was the spring equinox. Directly over the gates was the serpent Hydra, the constellation, the serpent Hydra. We were just completely blown away by that. It's deliberate. And, and the 3.5 miles of earthen walls, this is what the docent, which we, we it was a, uh, I guess a high school group out there. And so this guy's on camera, posted on YouTube. So I took it off the YouTube channel and, you know, fair use and used it in the movie. So this docent is going, these 3.5 miles of earthen walls were constructed using hose made out of the shoulder bones of deer, uh, clamshells, and, and regular, you know, stone tools. So in the film, we deconstruct this. We, we made a replica, and this guy goes out with the hoe, and after like 16 minutes, he gets a bucket of dirt, and he carries the bucket of dirt, you know, maybe a couple hundred yards to where the site would have been. He dumps out the bucket and steps on it. And when I show that to people at, at these conferences I speak at, people just, the entire audience just erupts in laughter. 3.5 miles of continuous walls is analogous to 200 miles of dump trucks parked end to end. Got that? That's not a mile. That's 200 miles of dump trucks parked end to end to construct the 3.5 miles of earthen walls that make up Fort Ancient. Are you kidding me? This whole thing collapses when you start to deconstruct it. And that's just one. The second film, Mathematical Mysteries of the Mound Builders, we show that there's advanced trigonometry, there's advanced surveying techniques, advanced building techniques, high, high knowledge of mathematics, and everything is built on an 18 and a half year lunar cycle. And, and you want to understand that when, when we hear that, we go, well, what does that have to do with anything, LA, an 18 and a half year lunar cycle? Well, in modernity, we know that, the, that you know, the lunar, um, the moon goes through phases. It waxes and wanes. It goes up and goes down. It changes all the time. And it's on an 18 and a half year lunar cycle. We know that. We can track that. But you go back 3,000 years ago, and, you know, how would you know that the moon is an 18 and a half year lunar cycle? In other words, let's say you and I go out, and we go, okay, here we are. And we're not sure where we are in this. We don't even know it's 18 and a half years. We're going to track the, the moon. We're going to track the waxing and waning of the moon. So we go out and we, we line up some sticks and we make some notches on the sticks the first night. Pretty good. Second night we go out and we make some notches on the sticks. We do this for, let's say, 50 days. Well, day 51, this storm front comes in. And for five days, we can't see the moon. Because of the fog, the rain, the clouds, can't see the moon. So what do we do? Start over again? See where I'm going with this? And then go back 3,000 years ago. How do they crunch the data? I mean, how do they how do they crunch the data and know that, oh, we were here before? In other words, when you jump, let's say right now, three-year, five-year, ten, no one knows unless you know that you're the cycle. So we get into all this in the and, you know, the, the deeper we go, we realize that this, this area that's been literally realized. Um, I like the term that you use when you say fallen angel technology, Nephilim. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, on this example, by the fallen angels. In fact, when you go in the book of Enoch and you read the book of Enoch, which is found in Exodus 12 throughout the Bible, it's not canon, it's not inspired scripture. But at least we can appreciate this Jerusalem. I mean, we can read, you know, works by, let's say, Flavius Josephus. Well, that's not that's not part of our Bibles. We can't appreciate that it's um, we can't appreciate its historicity. So when you look, when you go back and, and we start looking at some of these things, um, which is analogous to Josephus, uh, the same just just reading from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the translation, there's an angel by the name of Sariel, and it says very specifically that this fallen angel showed the procession of the lunar. Of, of, of the lunar procession showed how it worked and just gave that information to mankind. So that's why I believe that many of the things that we see, like Saksi, Ramon, Poyet, and Tombo, and others, uh, are phenomenology, including what we have over here. But see, Darwinism is the real paradigm which the scientific community runs in Neanderthal. Neanderthal in episode three, we know this. You know, we show people exactly what's going on, and some of it is actually captured on camera, which completely blew us away. We, you know, we didn't know that we, we were going to get into this, so we got into it. Uh, and we've got accounts from a pastor, and Steve Quayle was kind enough to let us use the audio from Henry Gruber, where he talked about going to this great serpent mound in Ohio and, and trying to cancel the, the rituals that have been going on there. He was struck out. It was wintertime, and it was snowing, and he was struck out. He's the only one there, the only one in the parking lot. He's unable to move. And he starts to cry out to the Lord, going like, you know, this is not going to bring honor to you, Lord. The Lord speaks to him and says, Henry, I didn't tell you to come in here. This is the sin of presumption. I didn't tell you to come in here. So I'm going to release you, because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But I didn't I didn't call you to come in here. And Henry learned a very powerful lesson. But, you know, he was, he was there at the great serpent mound, and he's just walking back. I've been there three different times. It's a spooky place. It's a weird place. We flew our drones there. You can only see the serpent now. It's in Ohio, and it's this undulating serpent um, through the landscape. The first time I was there, I was going like, well, I don't understand what I'm looking at. You know, what is this? Who cares? It didn't seem like a big deal. But then when you go in the air, you realize that this is a serpent. With its mouth open, and in front of it, right, is is an egg. It looks like an egg or a disc, an egg. And when we, I wrote a paper on this, the serpent mount, a new paradigm, which goes back to Genesis 3:15. The seed of the serpent, the dragon, will be an enmity of war with the seed of the offspring of the woman. He, the coming one, the Messiah, will crush the serpent's head. The serpent will bruise Messiah's heel. That sets up the rest of the biblical prophetic narrative. And with that in mind, when we now look at that, um, I, 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 on that icon, on that undulating serpent um, on, in Ohio, the serpent's jaws are like this, and it's, it's, it's in the act of devouring an egg, attempting to swallow the egg. New age was completely reversed. Oh, the, the serpent, which denotes wisdom, is giving birth to wisdom, giving birth to the egg, the seed of knowledge. We're going nonsense. This is 3.15, Genesis 3.15, all day long. And we show this in the film, the, the, the so-called Mayan elders 
with the 13 crystal skulls show up at the Great Serpent Mound in 2012, actually 2011, right before 2012, right? Celebrating. And they're there and they're chanting. We show this in the film and it's unnerving to hear them all. It sounds like this. And everybody's hitting this one note and out it goes and it's freaky. Absolutely. They're, they're opening the gate. They're opening the gateway, the portal, the interdimensional um, gateway between that world and this world. When we were there and Fritz Zimmerman uh, joined us with this, and Fritz is featured throughout most of his films, uh, he's a battle buddy of this. And Fritz and I are out there, uh, and it was, again, it was the equinox, and there, there was a coven of witches that were there. They knew exactly what that place is, and they go there for the power. And so we prayed against that, we flew our drone. So that's, you know, that's a little bit about what the series is about. And that's why we're on the trail, because uh, Fallen Angel technology is all over this stuff. Nephilim architecture, Fallen Angel technology, that's what these sites are. Um, can you, this is a little bit of questions. I, this doesn't have to do with the documentary, but it's very interesting. Um, are the Anunnaki then comparable to the Fallen Angels, or were they a different set of beings? This is from the Sumerian text. The yeah. Anunnaki um, is always looked at by New Agers, but all you need to do is just go Anunnaki fallen angel, boom, because it's the same thing. It is. These, these entities, these entities, the Anunnaki, they're, they're, they're depicted with wings, just like angels are. And they give all this knowledge to mankind. It's right out of the book of Enoch. So the Anunnaki, in my opinion, are the fallen angels. That's what they are. That's who they are. And then this is an interesting question. Did the Native Americans coexist with the giants, the Nephilim? Yeah, they did on, on some level, absolutely. <laughs> the reason why we know this, uh, Chief Joseph comes on the record, Chief Joseph Riverwind is a Tiano peace chief. Um, and he's featured in several of the films. And I've known the chief now for a number of years. He's just a great guy. And uh, he and his wife, Dr. Laura Lynn Riverwind, are, are, I consider them, you know, just really good friends. And so the chief comes on the record and, and tells us that according to their oral tradition, these giants, these Nephilim giants, six fingers, red hair, would come raid the villages. They would pick up a brave, rip the head off, drink the blood like they're drinking down a Coca-Cola, and then go to the next one. They would come in with these long spears, and they would thrust the spear and, and in some cases, they would have two or three people on these pikes, on these spears. So yeah, so all this is uh, a matter of their oral tradition, but it's all, well, we won't count that because, you know, you're just savages. You don't have a written language. And that's how they're treated by anthropologists and modern day archaeologists. I wanted to, I wanted you to share some of that in the, in the, the, um, in this podcast, because it's very interesting. And, um, what I wanted to say was, didn't the Indians have to fight them into a cave? Or I think that's what I heard in the documentary, that the Indians had to fight them into a cave and then burn the cave, I believe. That's, 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 just, that's just one place. That's, that's a place called Lovelock Cave. I was there. Um, the Bureau of Land Management, isn't that interesting, sealed the cave off. You used to be able to go um, into the cave. So they sealed it off. In, in fact, I lost a... Um, uh, I, I lost 
I say this, I, I lost this manuscript, this book that I had bought from a university, which cost me about oh, well over $100, because there was only a few of these things printed. And I uh, um, lost that in the fire. But they, they showed some of the mummy wrappings and other things that they had already found uh, in the Lovelock cave. According to Sarah Winnemucca, who is uh, one of the Paiute, the Paiute tribes were in that area. And at the Lovelock cave, these giants would come out and they would, they would steal the children and eat them. They were cannibalistic. And so the, the, the Paiutes got together and rounded them up and basically started to fight them. The giants retreated into this cave complex and uh, they were all burnt. And when you go into the cave, you can actually see, I gotta get my dog, you can actually see that the roof has been charred with a fire. Oh. Catalina. And he told me that they had just unearthed this cache of records and pictures from the late Ralph Glidden. And Glidden was a primitive archaeologist in 1919-1921 who was um, uh, hired by the Hay Museum to go out and conduct these, these archaeological digs on the, on the Channel Islands. The Channel Islands go on the west coast of the United States from Santa Barbara down to San Diego. So he's out there digging this stuff up. And uh, he also had a museum, which he sold to Wrigley, uh, the chewing gum fame, for about 5,000 bucks. And he had all of these records and photos and, and letters, and they all went missing for, for decades. And this guy who was a curator at the museum on Catalina Island, John Borgino, discovered this cache of records. Well, this was front page news of the LA Times. And, and my friend, uh, Jim told me about it, and I immediately contacted the museum and began to negotiate with them, which took six months and a $1,000 contribution for the new museum, which I was more than happy to give, and they allowed me access. So I'm there, and everything had already been picked over. What I mean by that, anthropologists, archaeologists had already looked at everything, all the pictures were cataloged, everything is in museum boxes. So John Borgino goes, what do you want to see first? And I go, I want to see the pictures. They bring out museum boxes. The pictures are encased in, in plastic, but you can take them out. I'm wearing gloves. My camera's on, on a tripod. I've got two, two tables with white paper on them. And uh, I start looking at this stuff. Well, and this doesn't happen in the archives. Uh, most of the time, you can spend days in the archive and not find anything. But I hit pay dirt because I'm looking for giant skeletons. I'm looking for six fingers. I'm looking for elongated skulls. I found everything. I found elongated skulls, six-finger skeletons, and giants on Catalina. So we got the picture, and it's this picture that shows Ralph Glidden standing in a recently excavated grave. And in front of him is a very large skeleton in situ. So I, I passed that out to three other researchers who looked at this thing and said, based on Ralph Glidden's height that we know is five foot eight, you're looking at a skeleton nine feet tall. So we published it, and this created a firestorm. So when we went back to the museum several months later, after it was already published, after I was on Coast to Coast and numerous other radio shows, in the museum itself, they, they taken my picture that I discovered, 
which is a black and white photo side by side. And they blown it up like this. They blown it up and they put it on the wall. And but guess what? There's this whole hit piece underneath the picture about how Ralph Goodman's a horrible person and a racist and a little more than a great robber. But they cropped the picture out of, of the, they cropped the giant out of the picture. Stay right there. There's the original picture, which I, which I took. Oh, wow. Ralph, see the giant in front of him? Yeah, the giant skull. Okay. This is what you saw when you went to the museum. There's no giant. Not the giant out of the picture. The giant, the giant should be right here. He's not here. Look, yeah. look again. Yeah, the giant skull. There's Ralph. There's the giant right in front of him. See it? Yeah. And then this is what they did. They took the picture That's and, and they cropped it. Why would they do they that? It's so dirty. This is this is supposed to be science. These are people that are the high priests of, of, of the modern day world, the scientists, and they don't like the evidence. So they fudge the evidence. They they cropped the giant out of the picture. So we took pictures of that, we filmed there. That went viral. Okay. What's interesting is, is when you go to the new museum, the original picture is there. They've blown it up. Basically, they've blown it up this size. The whole picture is there, this size. They never, ever talk about the giant. There's all this dialogue. Never talk about my work. I mean, I'm the guy that did that. I'm the guy that found the photo. I'm the guy that got it analyzed. And I'd like to thank the people that did it, that analyzed it for me. Michael Register did a wonderful expose as well as two other researchers to, to, to pin it down but it, it's my intellectual property it's my discovery i'm the guy that 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 did the work that flew to catalina on my own dime and uh paid the thousand dollars to the museum and and discovered it i did the research i'm out of the it's like what a discovery and yet they fudge it oh no enough of the see here keep moving on folks i mean can you imagine if they, if they, if the museum on Catalina come and see the giant that Ralph Gooden found, but they can't do that, and there's a reason for it because it points to the validity of a supernatural worldview. It points to the validity of the giants, the Nephilim that we read about in our Bible, and that's what that's what's at stake here, and that's what they're terrified about. So they don't want to. They don't. They just want to prove what Darwinism. They don't want to admit to any of religious because it seems like. When I've talked to like new age theorists and stuff, like when they try to present something in a field, like the people don't want to hear about it about their supernatural theories. And then it doesn't seem like they want to hear about Christian supernatural theories. So what they just want to prove Darwinism? Is that what they're Yeah, Dar Darwinism is the paradigm that operates the exclusive paradigm that operates in the scientific and, and the academic community. I mean that's it. Unless you're going to a Christian university. Um, we will talk about the God of the Bible created, but that's not what that's not what scientists believe. Scientists believe that everything evolves slowly. The neo-Darwinists are looking out out there, out in space, for our creators, our progenitors. 
because they realize that um, the, the primordial slime as we know it, there's no way that it produced the complexities of the double helix of the oxyribonucleic DNA molecular structure that we see, which is the basis of all life on this planet. Somebody designed that. And that somebody, in their opinion, was ET, was an extraterrestrial. This, this series is promulgated every Friday, today's Friday, on ancient aliens. And I will be watching because I have to counter that with the truth. There's an ancient aliens tonight. You're saying a new one about that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to ask you about was what was the results of the uh, elongated, the DNA evidence on the elongated skull? Well, this is this will be number. Um, um, this will actually be number six. It's already done. It's finished, and I'll be releasing that this year. I'm not sure, why, but I might I might do it sooner. I might I might do it sooner. And uh, we're working on part two of America Stonehenge. But the DNA film, it's it's a very difficult film to edit because we had numerous terabytes, about about two and a half terabytes of footage from Richard Shaw, the late my good friend, the late Richard Shaw, who was the producer and the editor, uh, the director, like me, he was a co-producer, but he was the director and the editor of all the watchers. Probably. He was a fabulous job. I, I learned under his tutelage how to edit, and I'm, I'm getting better, hopefully, with each film. At least I like to think so. But it was Rick, under, I sat under Rick, we did um, 26 full-length half-hour TV programs together. Um, and that we actually had a television show and we just couldn't make it work financially. So we stopped doing that. And now I just do it on YouTube with my, with my stuff. So yeah, um, uh, what was interesting about, you know, all, all of that and well, I, I got I went down too many rabbit holes. What was the question again? The evidence for the DNA results from the yeah 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 yeah. Skulls. See, that's the problem. We start talking about that, then I talk about Richard and the director, and then how so it's, I'm, I, well, where am I? What, what what room am I in now? Okay, so circling back to the DNA, um, we had all this all this film from Rick, like two terabytes of it on a hard drive, and I spent like probably a month sorting things out. And how do I tell the story? From 2013 to essentially this year, um, even though the film was done in 19, and I finished it last year, how do I how do I tell a story without losing the audience? You know, and and I think we did that, even though the film was not released. It's uh, it's 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 pretty cool, but what we show in the film, and the new stuff in the film, you don't know yet. Doctors and chiropractors and surgeons and had to look at the skulls. And let me just show you something real quick. Hold on. So when you look at the skull. When you look at this, oh, that's a real elongated skull. Well, it, it's it's a one-to-one -one model. It's not oh. real. So let, let me just walk you through this. So the mainstream archaeologists tell us that you you bind the child's head 
and you shape it this way. It's impossible because there's a couple of reasons why. Let's start with my favorite. This is the work of Rick Woodward, our anthropologist on our team. And Rick shows that, oh, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I, I lost the audio. Oh. Can you, can you see me? Yeah, I can see you. I can hear you too. Okay, I can't see myself. That's really, really weird. Can you hear me? I can hear you, yeah. Yeah, I can but hear I, you. I, I, I can see you. I can't, I can't see what's going on in the camera. Oh, I can see the bottom of the, uh, the, the yeah. bottom of the skull. So, okay, so right here, this is the foramen magnum. Okay. On a normal human being, it should be, it should be here. Okay. It's pushed, it's pushed posterior to the back of the skull. So it sits like this. Okay. Okay. Ours, our foramen magnum sits like this. You can't manipulate the position of the foramen magnum. You can't push the skull of a child back closer. You kill the child. It's impossible. That's a genetic anomaly. We've got doctor after doctor after doctor coming on surgeons. People looking at it going like, this is, this is a genetic anomaly. Now let's look at this. There should be a sagittal suture right here. There's none. And, 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 and the archaeologists will say, oh, well, that's, you know, craniosynatosis where the suture closes. Well, excuse me, what, pot, what percentage of the population have craniosynatosis? 1%? Why is it that the majority of skulls that we find in, in Paracas, Peru, have no sagittal suture? Yeah. Hello, what are we looking at here? And there are genetic anomalies all, I mean, look, look, look at the, just look at the forehead. I mean, give me a break. Wow. Then we go to the orbits on the eyes. The orbits, we had a, we had a optometrist weigh in. The orbits are larger, 20 to 25% larger than a normal human being. And the pupils are closer together than a normal human being. So wow. we are looking, and he believes, as I do, that they had night vision. And they were nocturnal. How do we know that? We're connecting the dots. And nobody's connected. Nobody's connected, and it's in the film. It's in the film. So wow. that, you know, maybe I'll release it before I release uh, part two because it's done. But we're actually, we're actually waiting for new DNA testing that we're doing, but everything's shut down. The lab's shut down because yeah. of the stupid Wuhan virus stuff. Um, the, the last question I have for you is I saw you're making a movie about the UFO phenomenon. I wanted to get your opinion on that. On UFOs, because that might challenge by UFOs too. So, well, I'll send you a private link where you can watch the film. How does that sound? And we'll we'll pick that up in another interview. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, anything you want to share about your thoughts on it? The... Yeah, I mean, UFOs are real, burgeoning, and not going away. Mm -hmm. This phenomenon is a coming great deception. In in the same way that the globe right now uh, is in is in lockdown, the entire planet is in lockdown. It's, it's an unprecedented global event. We've never seen anything like it ever, ever, ever in the history of the world. Yet it's happening right now, okay? So uh, when they show up, when they really show up, like Independence Day with a craft over some city, that's the game changer. That's the ultimate paradigm shift. That's the mega lever. The whole planet just goes click just like that. 
and people don't understand that. Yeah, I understand. Um, and the last thing I want to say is, uh, I got the documentary. It's on Vimeo. It's eleven dollars. It's uh, on the show on the Nephilim, and I loved it. I thought it was excellent. Yeah, and when you say eleven dollars, you're watching all four films for eleven dollars. Yeah, so it's a yeah. great deal. You can rent each one for I think four dollars, but I just because of our interview, I wanted to be prepared for our interview. Plus, I wanted to see it, so I got all four for eleven dollars, which is a great deal because. I'll tell you what, Stephen Greer's movie came out, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, and that's twenty dollars just for that. But I mean, which right. is, it's a good movie. I saw that too, but I mean, it's 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 still it's cool. So uh, I would highly recommend yours. Like, and you you can you can rent the films, folks, by going to my Vimeo channel channel L A Marzuli. I saw you're very political on your page. What did you think about this COVID-19? I didn't watch your COVID-19 videos. Right? I think that this is a managed agenda with, with a very nefarious end. And that nefarious end is Bill Gates trying to vaccinate everybody with the global vaccine. So, yeah, I, I think so. Who knows what's in that? Yeah. I, that, you're exactly right. Well, I